Hi, everyone. My name is Matt Carter, and uh, it's just really, really great to be with you. I'm not going to stand here this whole time and hold this, but uh, it's great to be with you. Um, as Tim said, I'm from Muncie, Indiana, where I, uh, with some friends and uh, some people we really love, planted a church about six years ago now, which is hard to believe. Um, and I'm here this morning with uh, my lovely wife, Liz, and we've been married for uh, 14 years. I know some of you are like, did you get married when you were like 12? Uh, you were thinking that, weren't you? Uh, I'm 37. I'll let you guys do the math um, on that. Uh, and our two kids, Silas, who's, who's nine, and Claire, who's eight, are with us. And it was very, very generous and kind of Gold Lake to invite me back a little bit earlier this summer. I was here a couple of years ago, like at the middle or end of, July, of August. And school starts like August 2nd in Muncie, where we're from. So it's really, really great that they'd have me back and that the kids and, uh, and Liz could be here with me as well. So I'm honored to be here. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you all this week. I'm really looking forward to what God has in store for us in our time together. I'll share a little bit more about myself um, tomorrow and, and throughout the week. I hope some of you here, anybody like history? Like two, two people? Okay, good, there's more than a few people. I was gonna be in trouble. So uh, we'll get into some of that. And if you don't, it's okay. I'll, I promise I'll try uh, my best to make it interesting. So if that's possible, right? Well, we're gonna get jump right in uh, to scripture for now. Um, just to start out here this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter two. Uh, Philippians is the Apostle Paul's letter to a group of believers living in a city called Philippi. And Philippi was, a, it was actually a Gentile city, a Roman colony, like a Roman outpost. And so uh, we have to understand Philippi was very much part of the larger uh, Roman empire um, that surrounded it. Now this passage that we're gonna look at in Philippians, this is one of the most um, discussed, I guess kind of debated sections of scripture really in the New Testament. And the, if you can call it this, the debate is over uh, the nuance of certain words, like their precise meaning. And I actually read one scholar who was looking at just these few verses, and his bibliography had more than 500 sources. So we're not gonna do that, uh, so, so don't worry. Um, I, I really appreciate that there are people, smart people, who've devoted their lives to, to sorting these things out, you know, like at a granular level. Uh, but to me, when, when I read this, it actually seems what Paul is saying seems to be pretty clear and straightforward. I would actually argue that, that understanding this is a whole lot easier than actually doing uh, what Paul says here. So that's the good news. You can read this with no background and no context and very clearly get the main idea. But if you really want to understand how countercultural this was, if you want to kind of grasp how much of a punch these verses would have had when the people living in Philippi, this Roman colony, received this letter and read it out loud. Uh, we've gotta understand just a couple things about how the first century world uh, worked, specifically first century Roman world. Now in this culture, in places like Rome and in places like Philippi, there was basically an invisible ladder. And there was a top rung, a top step, which I'm not gonna climb up to, uh, where everyone wanted to be and then, of course, there's the bottom, where pretty much most people happen to find themselves. And everyone knew very clearly where their place was on this ladder. 
It was very important that you not only define that, but you defended your place. And so in this culture, uh, pretty much every person that you met, there were social clues and there were uh, status indicators. So you would meet someone and instantly know, is this person in front of me above me or below me on this ladder? Are you with me so far? Of course, at the top of the ladder are, are who? The, the powerful, like people who are really eloquent and persuasive, the elite, people who were born into the right families. At the very top of the ladder uh, were the successful and the talented and the beautiful and the people with the most Instagram followers and, and retweets. I'm just checking. Okay, you're with me. Uh, now, when people in the ancient world, when they thought of the, the super powerful, the leaders, the kings, the rulers, the people at the top, they immediately thought of people like Alexander the, Alexander the Great. Um, at the age of 20, Alexander succeeded his father, who was named Philip, King Philip II. Now, here's a picture of the Greek Empire under King Philip II. This is Alexander's father. And today, of course, it's modern-day Greece and three or four countries to the north. So a pretty sizable area. Now, Philippi, the place Paul is writing this letter to, to the believers in Philippi, is right there. Philippi was named after who? <laughs> you guys are like scholars. This is incredible. Named after Philip II, Alexander's father. Now, do you think that that was a connection that the people living in Philippi in the first century probably made? Yes. Yes, they knew that. Like when you're driving down the street and you see Washington Street or Jefferson or Adams, you know why those streets are named that way. Anyway, after King Philip II, Alexander takes the throne of the Greek Empire. Again, he's 20. Now, some people, when they're 20, they want to, I don't know, go to school or get a job or like get their first credit card. Like what were your great ambitions when you were 20 years old? Alexander, at 20 years old, he decides... I'm thinking about maybe conquering the world, so I'm, I'm gonna give that a try. Uh, what my dad did, you know, that's fine for him, uh, but I'm gonna do something far greater, and so that's what he set out to do. Check this out. This is uh, the Greek Empire under his father. Same picture, just scaled out. This is the Greek Empire by the time Alexander finished his world domination tour. By the way, all of this by the time he was 33 years old. So by the age of 33, he had succeeded to such an extent that it actually made sense within the thought for the time for Alexander to be considered not just great, but maybe this guy's like divine. Maybe he's, maybe he's better than great. Now, hundreds of years later, this is around the time of Jesus, there was another emperor who came on the scene. This guy was named Augustus, and there was a new empire. The Roman Empire had taken over the Greek Empire. And what we, what we find is people like, like Alexander, people like Augustus, got so high on this ladder, where do you go from there? And so what they ended up doing was ultimately demanding people beneath them worship them as gods. What they did was they said, if you're below us, you are going to refer to us with very humble titles like Lord and Savior and King of Kings and on and on. Um, a handful of, em of emperors after Augustus. There was a guy named Nero. Have you heard of him? And he was the emperor in charge when Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, and we're gonna get there in just a second. Uh, Nero was infamous for lots of reasons. He basically looked out for himself. 
Uh, number one, he murdered his own mother, for starters. Here's a picture. This is literally entitled, this is a painting, The Remorse of Emperor Nero After the Murder of His Mother. And you can see he's pretty torn up about it, right? So this is the kind of guy uh, he was. He just eliminated anyone in his life he saw as a threat to his rank, his status. In 64 AD, there were these massive fires throughout Rome, and Emperor Nero was in charge, and he wanted to blame somebody to, like, save face with the people. And so he just, they didn't do this, but he pointed to the Christians, uh, and he says, Christians did it, which, of course, led to a widespread persecution of, of the Christians. So this is how the powerful maintain their control. This is how you made sure that no one took any of your glory. If you're here, you do anything you can to protect that status. Um, you make sure, and by the way, if you made it to the top, you're, you're suspicious, aren't you? Like anybody below you might, might, might take your position and so you eliminate threats and you show no weakness and you're suspicious of everybody. Chances are the reason that you got to the top was because you took advantage of every person and opportunity for your own benefit. And so guess what? Things like deceit, things like backstabbing, sometimes literally that's where that phrase comes from, all fair game. I mean, the end always justified the means, whatever it took to, to get there and to stay there. Uh, it, I find it fascinating that in this culture, if you were able to like pull one over on someone because you were so cunning and you were so sophisticated, you were actually really good at lying with a straight face, if you could do that and get away with it, you know what everybody did? That's impressive. I mean, it was actually seen as a virtuous thing. Uh, there was a value in Roman culture called the cursus honorum. Cursus honorum, and it sounds like a Harry Potter thing. Uh, it's not. And it's Latin for course of honor. It's the upward movement everybody wanted, but very few people actually got. Kids were taught from a young age that life's all about climbing the next rung through achievement, through who you rub elbows with. Um, there are actually inscriptions from this time period of two-year-olds who passed away, and on their gravestones, the parents listed all the achievements of their two-year-olds, like the class they were born into and their list of accomplishments at two. Uh, you guys thought that um, sometimes today that parents go overboard, you know, bragging about their kids, uh, you know, You've seen the bumper stickers, right? My kid's amazing. My kid ended chaos. My kid brought world peace and, and on and on. It's, it's why there's actually now pushback uh, bumper stickers. Maybe you've seen these. Proud parent of a kid who's sometimes a jerk, and that's okay. <laughs> Can you say that? I don't know. Uh, one more thing about the first century. Self-promotion was perfectly acceptable, Self-congratulation was like, it wasn't just for emperors at the top, no matter where you were on the ladder. You looked for ways to parade your best accomplishments in front of other people. Uh, you can look at the famous uh, autobiography of Josephus. Have you heard of him? He's the famous chronicler, chronicler of the, the Jewish people. He's also really important to historians because he's a credible source outside the Bible who mentions Jesus as an historical figure. Anyway, in his biography, you read this at the beginning, he, he starts by talking about how amazing his family line is, like how great 
his parents are and why his illustrious mother and father are of such nobility and esteem and why they crushed it in every possible way. And then he gets to himself. Are you ready for this? This is what he says about himself. I made great progress in my education, gaining a reputation for an excellent memory and understanding. While still a mere boy, about 14 years old, I won universal applause for my love of literature, insomuch that the chief priests and the leading men of the city used constantly to come to me for precise information on some particular in our ordinances. And he goes on and on. But you get the idea. Perfectly normal. And, and by the way, compared to Augustus or, or, uh, or Nero, he's one of the good guys. Perfectly normal and acceptable. Now, these concepts, let's take all this with us, these are woven into the fabric of a place like Philippi. Self-promotion, status, power. Again, Philippi's a Roman colony. It's so normal for them, they wouldn't have thought it strange at all. Uh, just like playing off of last night, none of us think it's strange that we have a World Series, World Series, consisting entirely of American North American, I don't want to forget about Toronto, North American teams. Of course, it's totally normal. You get that. It's a little bit weird, right? Worlds, okay. So Paul in Philippians, he reminds the believers of the example of Jesus. And I just got to say here, there are parts of following Jesus, of living in his kingdom. There are parts that kind of go along to some degree with our culture. They don't seem that strange. But there are other parts that cut like 180 degrees against the grain. That seems so foreign and so counterintuitive, and I would suggest that what he says next is the latter. Not just for them, but also for us. Verse three, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. Remember this? Now, he's just getting warmed up here, but what he's saying already is huge. He says, don't follow your culture by acting out of selfishness, out of, out of conceit, out of what will benefit you personally. So right away, they're going, wait, wait, hold on. You want me to look around to the interests of the people around me? You want me to meet their needs? And, and Paul says, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Now, this word, humility, in Greek, um, that, it doesn't just mean modest or deferential or gentle. Uh, a better definition is a willingness to hold power in service to others. This is fascinating. Outside of the New Testament, in Greek, when this word shows up in other places, it's always derogatory. Do you know why? Because humility is what people below you are supposed to show to the people above them. Humility is the attitude of a slave. It's never used positively. You look at people, philosophers like Aristotle or Plato, who write about all kinds of virtues. Guess what virtue they never mention? Humility. Why would we do that? That's, again, what a slave does. It's for people down here. And yet, this word humility is used almost 270 times in the New Testament. Positively. I mean, that is like a, a worldview revolution in, in our Western culture. Now, today, we, we take this 180-degree change for granted. Like, this is something that we all, we'll say we value it, 
even if we aren't it, but we'll, we'll affirm it. Um, let me say it this way. Uh, we'll tolerate some level of pride from people if they're really, really great athletes or musicians or really successful business people. Like with them, we'll accept a level of cockiness or bravado or whatever. But when you see someone who is great, when you see them demonstrate humility, we recognize that as, a, as something, there's something about, about that. Uh, one of my favorite stories of this, in 1953, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary, uh, he conquered Mount Everest with his Sherpa friend and guide, a man named Tenzing Norgay. And what they accomplished, especially when you think about the, the resources they had, that stands today as one of modern times truly great physical feats. I mean, they made it to the top like literally, right? Uh, so of course he was honored. I mean, later in 1953, he was knighted. In 1985, he was made New Zealand's high commissioner to, uh, to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. In 1995, he was given the British realm's highest award, which is the Order of the Garter, a membership of which 24 people, uh, that's all that can get it. Anyway, for, for Sir Edmund Hillary, one of the things that was really important to him was that he give back to the people of Nepal. And so in 1960, he established the Himalayan Trust, and he built through that schools and airfields and, and hospitals. And he wanted to give back something of what they had given to him. And so in a lot of ways, Sir Edmund Hillary is a really good example of someone foregoing power and status and influence for the benefit of other people. But on one of his uh, many trips back to the Himalayas, he's there and he's spotted by a group of tourist climbers. And they see, here's this man, Sir Edmund Hillary, this icon. And they went over to him and they said, could we please take a picture with you? And he agreed. And they handed him an ice pick so that he could hold it and sort of like look the part for the picture. And they're getting set up, they're getting ready to take the picture, and another climber walks by who doesn't recognize Sir Edmund Hillary. And so he sees him standing there in the middle of uh, this group of people. This other climber walks up to Sir Edmund Hillary and says, excuse me, sir, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Let me show you. And as the story goes, everyone stood around in amazed silence as Sir Edmund Hillary thanked the man, let him adjust the pick in his hand, and happily went on with the picture. Now, however great that other climber was, in that moment, his greatness is actually diminished, isn't it? Because of his intrusive presumption. And there's something about Sir Edmund Hillary's greatness that because of that humility, it's enhanced. There's something truly beautiful about humility when we see it. Paul challenges them and us in humility put others above ourselves. Now that's the goal. He's about to give us the reason for this. He's about to say, here's the driving force for why you would, you would go against the grain of your broader culture and the way that it works. Here's the reason you're gonna go against your natural tendency uh, if left to our own devices. And at this point he shifts from this narrative and he moves into more of a, of a poem or a song. And we don't know if, if Paul wrote this poem or if he's borrowing from an earlier 
a Christian hymn or a creed of the church. Uh, verse five, this is, there, without a doubt, this is one of the most stunning, towering sections of Christology, that is, truth about Christ and his accomplishment in the entire New Testament. Verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And that's the word phronesis, mindset, and he uses it again and again in Philippians. It's the attitude of our mind. It's our perspective. It's our outlook. Paul says, I'm trying to get you to shift your entire mindset. Your whole understanding of the way this world works, I want you to, to throw that out and look at it completely differently. And then he launches into this hymn or this poem describing the mindset of Christ that we are to emulate. Verse six, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Maybe your version says uh, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Can you imagine in a place where this describes every interaction that you have, every goal that you have, to read this about the Son of God, who had some pretty big-time leverage, would you agree, from terms of status, in terms of glory, in terms of position? And what Paul says is he, is he never once played the God card. While he was on this earth, he never pulled rank. He never went around saying, hey, hey, you know who I am, right? Scoot over. He never cut to the front of the line. Even though he outranked everybody all the time, he never used it for personal gain. Instead, he took the nature and form of a servant. He set aside his rights and his privileges. He accepted human limitations of, of time and space and knowledge. He never once, imagine this temptation, never once pushed the God button. He chose to share in our frailty. His glory was hidden in his humanity. And Paul's saying this. You all know about Alexander. You know about Augustus. You know about Nero. They go around constantly reminding everyone of where they are on the ladder. And Paul says, the people who think that they're up here they're actually nothing compared to true divinity. They're nothing compared to when the true king shows up. Jesus is the reality. He shows us this whole system of ascent, this whole system built on power and ego and manipulation and self-promotion, it's, it's a hollow shell. When Jesus, the true king of the universe, shows up, he renounces what is rightfully his, power, status, glory, rank, position. And then he does the unthinkable. He sets about purposefully moving all the way down the ladder to the bottom. Paul's not finished. Verse 8, he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the reason Paul interjects the word even here even death on a cross is because in this culture, a cross was the most repulsive, humiliating form of punishment available. Uh, the Roman philosopher Cicero, writing about 80 BC, here's what he says about crucifixion in general. 
He says, far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. If you're a Roman, you don't want to hear this word. You don't want to think about it. You certainly don't want to see one. Uh, The word cross, some scholars believe, was actually like a swear word, that it got like bleeped on TV. Uh, Emperor Constantine, who converted at some level to Christianity in the 300s, partly to save his empire and unite everybody, Constantine thought that the cross, beep, the sensor was lag, you see that in there? Uh, (laughs) He refused to talk about the cross. He thought it was an embarrassment. He thought, why in the world would Jesus, the Son of God, this powerful person, allow that to happen? C.S. Lewis makes a really interesting point. He says this, the cross, it doesn't show up in art, like the crucifixion. It doesn't show up in art until every person who had seen one for themselves died, was gone. It's the ultimate in shame and humiliation. It's not even on the ladder. It's below it. And Paul is very careful to emphasize that Jesus went to the cross uh, out of, he humbled himself out of obedience. In other words, it wasn't forced on him. He wasn't powerless in this moment. He went to the cross as a conscious choice to be obedient to God. Uh, The author John Dixon, in his book Humilitas, he clarifies what humility is. He says that Jesus' example is a reminder that humility always presupposes one's dignity. That the one being humble acts from a height, so to speak. It's why we say, we we talk about the humble lowering themselves. So it always presupposes the dignity of the person possessing it, their strength. And so it's not to be confused with low self-esteem or being a doormat for others. It has to be voluntary. The person has to choose it. If humility is not voluntary, guess what it is? Humiliation has to be voluntary and it has to be social. Uh, When we understand what Paul's saying here, humility isn't just self-deprecation. It's not just I'm gonna try really hard to banish prideful thoughts and I'm gonna try not to parade my accomplishments and brag about, that's that's modesty and that's a good thing, right? Humility is using that power, be it physical or financial or intellectual or structural, whatever it is, leveraging that for the good of others. And that's what Jesus does. In verse nine, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus pursued a course of complete status reversal. And God responded by raising Jesus up even higher than he was before he humbled himself, if that were possible. And and Paul says here that that if, as he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out what Paul is saying about the people who think that they're up here and everyone else is beneath them. I mean, to whisper what Paul publishes here boldly, you can see why that was a threat to the Romans and why they later executed him. Several implications for us. Uh, First, we worship, we give our lives, think about this, to a God who descends. 
I mean, for Alexander, for Augustus, for Nero, the more power, the more advantage, the more glory they got, the more they used those things to further their own arc of greatness. Jesus does the complete and utter opposite. He works his way all the way down the ladder, taking on our limitations, subjecting himself to the role of a suffering servant. I mean, we're struck by the servanthood and the humility of Jesus. We're struck by a God wrapped in human flesh who says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. In God, we don't see someone whose, whose objective is to take in demand. He seeks to serve and to yield and to lift up, that that's true power. I would submit to you that this is still the opposite of how our world works. It might not be as, this might not be as dramatic in our culture as it was to the people Paul was writing to. It might be less overt, but I would argue that this is still alive and well today. Here's the difference. This is still our goal. We just wanna appear humble as we're doing it. Like we're climbing, and I just wanna be thought of as humble by other people. It's still the game that we're playing. And Jesus' message then is therefore still offensive. I mean, the idea that power and authority exist so that we would then lift up those who are broken and in need, it's like, I mean, how dare you say that, that when you have strength and power and you can do whatever you want, that we're to choose the posture of a servant. And Paul says, I want you to shift your mindset I want you to change how you look at people and opportunities around you and what you're leveraging those for, which means if you're here and you're a parent or you're a boss or a manager, you have people looking to you because of your position on the ladder, which still exists. What are you leveraging that for? See, left to my own devices, I tend to leverage everything for pretty much me, and then after that, I'll think about someone else because I'm a nice guy. My natural inclination is to want to submit to myself, and that's it. Besides, if I submit to others, if I leverage what I have for their gain, and for, for, I mean, what's going to happen? Pretty soon it's like, you go first, now you go first. I mean, I'm never going to get in the door, right? After you, after you, I'm still here. I mean, if everybody did this, nobody would get on an elevator, right? So how does this work in real life? And I, I just want to, this isn't about politeness or having good manners. This is about a shift in our identity and how we see ourselves and other people and our purpose. This isn't like a thing we do here and there and like check, we got our servant merit badge, we're good. No, it's a change in how we see ourselves and how we relate in, in each one of our relationships. You know, our, our culture, you've probably noticed, uh, we're really focused right now on our personalities and our strengths and our wirings and there are all kinds of assessments and tools. Have you done any of these, like Enneagram or Strengths Finder? Anybody taken one of those? So you know where your strengths lie, right? And, and these are great, I've done like all of them, probably, and I, I think there's real value there. But one of the things that I think with those subtly creeps in is this idea that you would just find your strength and live exactly in those. Right, that you would just get that dialed in and you would be perfectly positioned. Here's what's really strange. It turns out nobody's gifted for doing laundry. 
hey, you know who you are? You're the laundry guy. You ever hear that? No. No, and the thing about being a slave is, is this. A slave couldn't say, you know what, I don't really do laundry. I'm kind of more of an idea guy, so that's my, right? <laughs> so, if you're a slave, you, here's what you say. Master, what do you want me to do today? That's it. But this, creep, this thinking has sort of crept into the church, and it's given us a justification for, for not adopting the posture of a servant. We use language of gifting. Well, I'm just gifted in this, this way over here. It's very, very narrow, and, you know, call me when you need me. Uh, it, it does turn out that, that no one has the gift of cleaning toilets. Did you know that? No one has the gift of stacking chairs or wiping down kids' toys after the nursery or whatever. Nobody's gifted. Somebody's got to do it. We got one guy that, that's gifted. That's great. Somebody has to say, for the sake of everyone, I have to be a servant. And yeah, you have gifts and unique things to offer the body, but all of that assumes you've already taken the posture of a servant, that you exist to serve, to give your life away. Within that, you find your passions, but it assumes first that you're a servant. So here's the challenge. I'm not gonna do this right now because I would kill myself, but Jesus inverts the ladder and shows us that the way up is actually down. And, and we do this not because we're supposed to, but because that's what we were created to do. That's where life is found. And so the challenge for those of us who follow Jesus, how can we demonstrate that the way up is actually down? How can we refuse to, with, it's actively refusing to play the normal game? And anything less, by the way, we're, we're saying that Jesus was either wrong or that, or that I guess it was fine for him to do but doesn't apply to us. Listen, Jesus submitted himself to everyone in this room. He submitted himself to you and me and everyone in the world. And Paul says, because of what he's done, I'm inviting you to do the same. I'm not asking you to die for that person because that's already been done. But when you do this, it shows incredible reverence and respect for your Savior who did this for you. We're to ask, how can I put this person ahead of myself? How can I use my advantage and my influence and my position and resources to lift someone else up? Because to enter into life with Jesus is to enter into the life of a servant. Last thought. Uh, can you imagine if we were all just, just saying, how can I give my life away to lift up the people around me? I mean, can you imagine if that was the game that we were playing? I mean, what would happen in a marriage? What would happen in a family? What would happen in a church if we were all doing that? It would change everything. Every time you put that other person first, your friend, your spouse, your roommate, and by the way, they may not notice and they may not appreciate it, but God sees it. Every act of sacrifice is, a, is, a, is a, an act of worship to him. It's an act of gratitude, worshiping the one who did that for you first. And so by taking on this posture, by living as a servant, it's done unto him, and he receives that as worship. Would you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we recognize that 
this is a lot easier to talk about than it is to do, which you also know firsthand. Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to fully grasp this reversal and what Jesus did on our behalf. And then, then Lord, out of, out of respect and out of gratitude and out of worship, may we embody and embrace this as a way of life, moving down the ladder for the sake of others. Lord, help us, uh, for those of us here who, who this means submitting and serving like our parents, when it's hard, for those of us, we've got like a, uh, an unreasonable boss or just someone who's just really difficult to love in our life. Help us to submit, help us to offer that act of service as worship to you. Thank you for the life and the death and the example and the resurrection of Jesus. May we walk in his steps and be transformed by him and your spirit working through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.